Welcome back to Left of Normal, where everything that isn't right is left, and everything that is left is right. I'm your host, Scott Siri. Uh, before we jump into this episode, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I really appreciate the support that you give me and all, all your support listening to my inane ramblings. Uh, if you find value in this podcast, I'd love it if you would like, subscribe, leave a comment, and share it with your community so we can spread this to more people, and hopefully more people will learn and grow from it. So last week we had Holden on. We talked a little bit about friendship, making friends. As somebody with ADHD and Asperger's, he has a couple of different things kind of going against him there. So we talked about how he goes about playing at school, on the playground, and then just what happens when friends part ways and what he thinks about. Today we have a special guest. Uh, her name is Jeannie Love. She's a neurodivergency coach. She works with a lot of businesses and professionals to create a more open, accepting workplace that's uh, suitable for neurodivergent people. So I'll let her introduce herself, and then we're just going to see where this goes. Welcome. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, so my background is 20 years of teaching high school students who had learning disabilities. Um, my primary area of passion with students who had ADHD or autism. And um, so that path kind of wound around through public high school and down into international teaching in South America, and then back in 2020. And as many of us did in 2020, I had some time to reflect on where I was going, looking at the second half of my career, also as a mother to a seven-year-old who was struggling with emotional regulation herself and kind of decided that it maybe public education wasn't really where I needed to be to be the best mother for her, to have the time and the energy to give to her. And so I started researching and found that there's a growing number of adults getting official diagnosed or self-diagnosing with ADHD and or autism. And I realized this is an area that I've got a lot of experience in. And I wonder how my expertise with high school students would translate to working with adults. And that's it. I started a coaching business. It's been going really well. I love it. Um, I love working with my clients and I'm sort of branching out to this aspect of, of coaching businesses and organizations on what it's like to have employees with ADHD and or autism in their, um, in their workplace and to help them understand what that looks like and some simple techniques that, <clears throat> excuse me, that they can incorporate to better empower those team members and employees. And so, yeah, that's sort of where I'm at right now. All right. And uh, so you, I got a couple of things that I'm writing down as we're going along. So I don't forget to ask these questions. Uh, you mentioned you see more and more adults uh, being diagnosed or self-diagnosing. Uh, do you think it's more of an awareness. We just know more about what autism is all about and what the signs are, or is it something that, or just, you know, there's sheer, just a sheer number of people. There's more people in the world. So there's going to be more 
people on the spectrum. How do you how do you see the number of adults or people with autism increasing? What what do you see as the cause? My opinion is that so I started working with autistic students 20 years ago. And at that time, we were really only diagnosing very severely impacted students. So people who are nonverbal or, um, you know, really like behaviorally challenged because they really struggled to communicate. And I think what we're doing is expanding our definition and understanding more and more of what autism is. And so we are diagnosing much better children like the amount of children uh, at all levels of the spectrum with autism, as well as now, that sort of information is becoming online. It's uh, adults are getting a hold of that information. I have an example of, you know, a woman that I'm working with who has a two-year-old who is having some behavioral challenges. So they go to the pediatrician, they hand her an autism screener, and she starts going down the checklist and she's like, oh, well, that's me. And so there's a lot of that that's happening, I think. And so, you know, between the amount of information that's now available online, the amount of people like you starting to talk about your own experiences and and the fact that they're finding it out through their children who are being more accurately diagnosed, I think all of that is expanding our understanding. And that is why... We, so I, I don't think that it has anything to do with a change in the population or a change in brains or anything like that. I think we're getting better at finding these people. Yeah, so it sounds like more of uh, just kind of how I found out. Uh, mostly I read the book, Look Me in the Eye by John Elder Robinson. And I was like reading through it and I took it to my wife and I said, this book is like all about me. This is weird. And so that kind of set me off on the path to discover what's going on and try and figure all that out. So it sounds like it's just, you know, more people are being aware that, you know, I'm called, I call myself just left of normal, whereas I'm not nonverbal, obviously, and not very severely impacted, but there are just weird quirks that I have to deal with. Yeah. And so that's why I started the podcast was just to explain there's a lot more of people like me out there and this is you know what everyone needs to be aware of that it's a big spectrum from you know severely impacted and need a lot of help to people like me that are minimally impacted but nonetheless yeah so but that's great so now we understand who you are how your brain works and i want more of that for for more people who have always not really understood why they see the world so so differently than whatever the general population. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned self-diagnosed versus like a professional diagnosis. Uh, I know there's in the autism communities, there's a lot of uh, controversy. Most people don't care, but then a lot of other people are very adamant that a self-diagnosis isn't a real diagnosis. Do you see much of a difference uh, one of the biggest barriers, at least here in the U.S., is you know cost. I can't afford to go pay thousands and thousands of dollars for a professional to tell me what I already know about myself. So kind of what are your thoughts on self versus professional diagnosis? So in my opinion, when I started this coaching business was I didn't care. Um, 
And then as I spent more time coaching and getting to know more people, that was when I realized that A, it's very cost prohibitive, as you said, and B, there's really not a lot of places to get an adult evaluation. I live in a rural part of Colorado. There's there's no one around here who feels comfortable doing an evaluation for an adult. So then they have to travel to, you know, a bigger city like Denver or something like that. Um, and then as I continued working with clients, and of course I can't give a diagnosis, but I've spent a lot of years of my life with people who are autistic and you know, maybe similar to you, you start, they start to check the boxes and they have this like aha moment that this is me. And in my opinion, they're usually right, you know? And so I think a self-diagnosis is, is good enough for me. It doesn't matter to me. I've got this sort of whole program and we'll pull the parts and the pieces that work for you to get you where you want to go. And then I recently actually met with a psychologist who, you know, is a medical professional and she had the very same opinion. She said, if so for her to say self-diagnosis, medical diagnosis, whatever, let's move forward. And so then I felt more comfortable with saying that I completely agree with that. Yeah, that sounds kind of in line with where things seem to be trending more with just the overall opinion of it, especially just because it, the care and the mental health stuff just isn't there in the U.S. Around the world, it seems a little bit better, but even then, it's a very long wait period. There was a couple yes. of reports that I read that I think they're in the U.K., and it's 18 months out before you can even sit down with somebody to begin the, the official diagnosis. And then it's several years later before you finally, they are willing to say, yes, you're on the spectrum or no. So I think I wish there was, you know, like a self-directed program. You could do most of it online and then take that into a professional. So you can skip over that first 20 meetings where you're just paying money to talk about yourself. And you can just do all that online anyway, or you should be able to maybe someday. Yeah, I like that. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what you're doing now. Uh, are you, do you do anything with kids or teens still, or is it all adults and workplace stuff? It's all adults and workplace stuff. Um, when I started figuring out what I needed for my daughter, who we now understand has ADHD. And so as I was sort of starting to put together, like what I was going to do to be more available emotionally and physically for her, it looked like I needed to let go of working with students because of scheduling, you know, when they're available after school is when I need to be available for my daughter. So that I knew that I was going to kind of have to let go of that or, or work, work with people in different time zones. And that was seeming kind of strange. So I've let go of that. And I now focus primarily on adults. I find the work incredibly rewarding because, you know, as I've already said, it's just so exciting to be able to help people who are ready to, t they understand themselves. They're like, okay, now what? And um, really ready to get to work and try some new strategies and be creative and problem solve and, and figure it out together. And so that's all I'm doing right now. And so are you primarily working with those that are on the spectrum or are you working with the employers that may be employing people that are on the spectrum or a little bit of both? 
A little bit of both. Primarily, it's my coaching business that started off because that was something that I had a lot of experience with. And so I started to do that. But I knew I also have a master's degree in educational leadership. And so part of my work in public schools was to work with administrators and teachers and put into place programs that work better for all students. And I was like, I think maybe the workplace is probably pretty similar. You know, there's some small changes that we can make or some small understandings about the way different the different ways that people think. And so I'm doing a little consulting with a few organizations and it's primarily education. What what is ADHD? What is autism? What does it look like? What might people's experiences be? And what are some just tiny changes that you could consider making in the beginning? to make it um, better for everybody's brain to participate and, and, and give their best in the workplace. So that's sort of the expanding part of my program. So I'm doing a little bit of both. Along those lines, uh, what's kind of the biggest thing? I know from my own work history, I always clashed with coworkers and bosses. And so none of them ever, no jobs really ever worked out, which is one of the big reasons that I just created my own job so I could do my own thing. I didn't have to deal with people that I didn't agree with or insisted on barging into my office and talking to me without knocking. Uh, what's kind of the biggest uh, thing you see in most businesses that is uh, kind of against neurodivergent people, not intentionally, but it's a it's a barrier for them? I think similar to what you said, some common challenges, whether you have ADHD or autism, uh, would be, you know, sort of transitioning between activities or or managing disruptions once in the flow and getting back into it. And so just understanding that, or I, I personally need more time to think and process. And so when you say, you know, what questions or comments do you have at the end of a session? I'm not going to have those for a few hours or till tomorrow as I've had time to think through the evening. And so just sort of understanding that all of that is okay and that we can just kind of broaden the way we look at things. Like let's respect that meetings in the middle of the day are disruptive to somebody's work. And some people, it takes a little bit longer to shift between activities. So we got to shift out of that activity into the meeting and then back again, or any disruptions can can completely throw you for the day. And so if you come barging into the door with whatever the thing is, um, that can really derail me as well. Another um, another one might be to, to lean into ideas that you don't really understand. They're not coming across as clearly. Sometimes I struggle with that myself to explain myself well verbally. And so leaning into that a little more instead of brushing it aside because that means that somebody is likely seeing something that you're not or in a different way. And so just understanding that a little bit more and opening up their perspective on how people think, those are those are my goals in the workplace. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what didn't happen with most of my jobs I'd offer opinions or alternative ways to do things and they just immediately get shot down. They were most bosses are aren't open to that sort of thing. Even though I've put a lot of time, I'm not just gonna go and change something just because I want it changed. I would always think it through and try to streamline and make things more efficient. 
And then the boss is like, no, I just, we like to do it this way. I'm like, okay. And then I, like you said, those meetings were always just a pain. It's not as bad when I was hourly. Cause then it's just, you know, I'm going to sit in this boring meeting for an hour and get paid to not do anything. But yeah. at the same time, then I'm behind on all my work. And then the boss is after me. Why are you behi so behind? I'm like, well, because you just made me go to a meeting that I had nothing to do with. Yes. Yes, exactly. So a little more thoughtful about some of those things, which doesn't really take a lot of effort, just awareness and understanding and respect for the different people in your on your team. And some of it, too, goes uh, the other way. The person that's on the spectrum needs to be a little bit more aware of, you know, the workplace and the where they've chosen to be. What are some things that you see that uh, ADHD or autistic people can change in themselves to create a better work environment or something that flows a little bit better? So a big aspect of my program is mindfulness and so for me, what that means is an awareness of what's going on throughout the day. So there might be a period in the day when you maybe sit and meditate for a longer period of time as a practice, but throughout the day to calm ourselves, to regulate ourselves, bringing more awareness is very easy to move on autopilot or to get stuck on hyper-focus and completely lose track of time or to just be constantly tidying up emails to feel productive and like we're accomplishing something. So there's, those are some of the things that I hear about. And what we want to do is really be very conscious and thoughtful about what we're working on right now. What are the distractions that are going to get in the way? Try to eliminate those as much as possible you know, turning off the phone and closing the tabs, you know, sort of a, a bit of a ritual to get set up for your task, putting on the headphones with the lo-fi music, if that helps you to tune in. Um, and then very consciously, and then the other thing that will happen, so now you're ready to work and the distractions will pop up, the email notifications, the Slack notifications, your text messages will pop up. And so how can you be very thoughtful about, I have this sort of now, not now strategy that I teach, which is sort of mindfulness-based, which is to, instead of just impulsively clicking on the thing or picking up the phone and responding, or in a moment of like, oh man, I am not getting anywhere with this. It's so like easy to grab the phone and just, well, I'm just gonna check email real quick. Give it the not now, not now check, which is to just sort of, instead of a reactive impulsively to activate your prefrontal cortex a little bit more and make a decision. Is this something that I need to take care of now? If so, I'm going to very consciously make a note of where I'm leaving the task that I was just working on and then I can come back to it. But if the answer is no, I'm in the middle of something here, that's not now. And then you can just kind of let that go. Or if a thought pops up into your head, just take a little note on the notepad next to you and just send it on its way and get back to it. So those are just some of the strategies. So I, I do that through teaching mindfulness. We do a lot of mindfulness practice in my program. Um, also emotional regulation. So if you trigger a little bit because of sounds or sights or disruptions, how can we 
get back to ourselves. So we do a lot of energy and emotional regulation as well. Those are just some of the aspects of my program that I help people with in the workplace because yes, it's a balance. Like you want to figure out how to make this work for you as well. Yeah, those are great. Uh, I noticed even with myself, so I'm working from home on my own, so I don't have the the coworker distractions, but I'll notice like if I'm halfway through a blog every now and then I'll kind of be at a stuck point or it'll, it'll be flowing and then it'll just kind of stop. And I'll notice I'll very easily get distracted just checking my emails or checking my Facebooks or whatever social medias happen to be going at the time. And so I, a lot of times I'll have to make a mental decision, you know, just a firm decision instead of following the dopamine or whatever is driving me towards checking other things. I give myself a goal like, okay, this isn't working right now. I'm going to outline the rest of this blog. Then I'll give myself five minutes to do whatever I want. And then I can come back. And a lot of times I, I think that it kind of keeps working in the back of my mind and my subconscious is planning out the rest of the blog that I'm going to write. So then when I do come back, it tends to be easier than when if I just tried to power through it. Um, yes, maybe I, love I, that. I don't know if you can speak on this. Uh, just you talked a little bit about the prefrontal cortex and uh, how the brain works when you get into those those funks where you stop concentrating for whatever reason and you run off to scrolling your social media. Is there some chemical or different parts of the brain that need stimulated? And is there any way to overpower that or stimulated in a way that's a little more socially acceptable or uh, pro uh, productive at the workplace. You know, I don't know all the science behind it, but here's how I look at it. I look at it like they've got these social media networks have the smartest, they've got a lot of money to pay really smart people to build these programs that activate those chemicals to distract us. And so that means we got to work even harder. And then especially if you've got low dopamine levels, then we've got to work even harder to prevent ourselves from getting sucked into that. Um, and I'm sorry, can you restate the second part of your question? So is there something that's more productive, like when I'm stuck and my mind just like goes completely blank and then I go scroll social media and then get sucked in for the next hour or so? Is there something else that I could do that would help not get sucked in or something that would help still stimulate that dopamine or whatever my brain is craving, but be productive work related? Okay. Thank you. So I have a few strategies that I give my clients. One of them is do the thing or do nothing. And so you have two choices is that you can work on your blog, for example, or you can do nothing and you will not give into your phone. In fact, it's over there, put away and social media is all shut down on your computer and notifications have been turned off and doing nothing is really underrated you know, the time of just sitting and, and daydreaming and letting your thoughts flow. So allow that. That is perfectly okay too. And I have really great moments of inspiration when I'm sitting and doing nothing. Or um, the next one that I was going to suggest is go for a walk, some sort of movement. I have a dog. She needs a walk every day. And when I walk, I don't take 
my phone. I don't, I don't multitask at all. I don't listen to a podcast. I don't call and catch up with my parents. Nothing. It's just me, the dog, the fresh air, the outside. And then thoughts start to flow again because I'm not multitasking. I'm not constantly filling my brain with stimulation. And then the third strategy I had, and this is the one that you kind of mentioned earlier, while it was similar to what you mentioned, was sometimes I'll just set myself a little time time limit. Like, okay, I am, I'm going to work for seven more minutes. I am not going to give in to the impulse for seven. I pick really random numbers, 11 minutes, something like that, because you can do anything for seven more minutes or 11 more minutes. And once you kind of get that going again, if it doesn't get going, take a little break, get a glass of water, make a lap around the building, whatever, resist the impulse to give into your phone and then come back and do seven more minutes. And then eventually you'll get back into the flow. But the trick is you can't give in to checking LinkedIn or checking your messages because now your brain, whatever's going on in your brain, it takes time to get back. Like a lot of time and effort to pick up where you left off after you have kind of delved into this other social media hit that they scientists know how to mess up your brain with. So that's the biggest, like get rid of that. And then pick another strategy to keep yourself going. Yeah, those are great. Uh, I talked about the book, The Myth of Normal, uh, a few weeks ago. And he talks a little bit about how there's the place, things like Facebook and Twitter. They've hired these extremely smart neuroscientists to understand exactly, you know, everything on the whole page down to the margins on the side and how you scroll and how quickly you can scroll. It's all customized to make sure you're basically destroying your brain as much as possible in order for them to profit as much as possible. Uh, that book's, it's a really good book. It's 500 pages of um, almost like academic reading. So it's hard to get through, but it's tons of great stuff on how the brain works and how we've, and then he correlates that into physical illnesses and increases in cancer rates and dementia rates are due to a lot of these social factors that we just tend to ignore because we have this weird thing that our mind is not part of our body. So we treat them as two separate entities, which I've been seeing a lot more come along that uh, people aren't subscribing to that as much. More doctors are saying, no, it's all one. We have to treat the mind and mental health the same way we treat physical health. And so I have hope that yes. things are getting better. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'll check out that book and that I do have started, especially through my daughter, I started learning a whole lot more about what is going into our bodies as far as the food that we take and the bacteria that's going on into our in our gut and in our intestines and how that's allowing or preventing good chemicals from getting through and into our brain. And so that's a whole other aspect that I think is so important. All right. So we're just about out of time. Uh, are there any other points that you want to make sure listeners pay attention to or how they can, kinda, if they're on the spectrum or not, how they can optimize their life and better get along with everyone? I mean, I would love to offer anybody who wants to talk. Just look me up online and you can book a call with me and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about like what's holding you back and and what what are your goals and and to give you some strategies that you can take away from that. I am happy to just chat with anyone 
mindfulness, evidence-based techniques. I have sort of a another aspect to my program that's positive emotional intelligence because we carry so many negative thoughts in our brain. So how can we start to build more positive pathways in our brain to look at life and changes? And so I'd be happy to chat with anyone anytime. All right. And how can people find you? What's your website, email, LinkedIn? What's the best way to get a hold of you? My website is, excuse me, genielove.coach, G-E-N-I-E-L-O-V-E.coach. On there, you can um, book that call. You can also email me, genie at genielove.coach. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's where I hang out in social media because I try not to get do the other social medias. Uh, message me there. You can sign up for uh, my newsletter there. I've got a, a guide on how to quiet the chaos that's going on in your brain. Um, and that's kind of the path to sign up for my newsletter. Any of those would be great. All right. Um, so I think that just about does it for us. Uh, for Tay, you've had a peek into the world where everything left is right. And if it feels right, then it must be left. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, please like, comment, subscribe, join our Facebook community. Uh, remember that workplaces are made up of a whole spectrum of people. And so if somebody's acting kind of weird, it's probably because they need a little bit different help or guidance in the workplace scenario. And of course, please share this podcast with your friends, whether they're left, normies, or right.